0: Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Welcome to episode 000092 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. Broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters this evening. I was planning to uh, bring it to you from Radio City Docklands, but Radio City Docklands is undertaking a bit of a refurbishment at the moment, so um, here I am in uh, sunny East Brunswick. And as we all know, sunny East Brunswick is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging this land always was and always will be aboriginal land so it is another week and another lockdown judging by the streets and the way people have been conducting themselves over the past few days people have been doing the right thing from what i can observe anyway whether you agree with the lockdown or not it's a stark reminder that we're still in the midst of a global pandemic and we shouldn't rest on our laurels especially given that not one vaccination has yet been administered in this country yet we're told that will be happening soon. So speaking of vaccinations, we hope to speak to some experts in the coming weeks to talk about the rollout of the vaccine to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities over the coming weeks and months. We know there are going to be a number of tier levels in terms of the rollout and the quarantine staff and medical practitioners on the front line of fighting COVID will be the first in line and rightly so. But there are still a number of questions on the next level of tiers and the logistics around Getting the vaccine out, especially to some of the remote Aboriginal communities across this big brown land of ours. So, we hope to get some insight in coming weeks. But as for tonight, we'll be talking with uh, very shortly Jada Pleader, who is one of the storytellers in a new initiative called Deadly and Proud, which is a campaign encouraging truthful storytelling from Aboriginal Victorians and traditional owners of country. And it's linked to the efforts to promote the treaty process as much as possible as well so we'll be speaking to Jada about that shortly and in the second half of the show um, you may have seen or heard yesterday that the Royal Society of uh, Tasmania and the Tasmanian Museum of an Art Gallery apologised ahead of the return of 14,000 year old Aboriginal artefacts to their original site. It's been been a uh, long and arduous campaign to get these artefacts back to country so we'll be talking to uh, Nala Mansell her and her dad, Michael, have uh, been campaigning for years and years and years. I know in Michael's case, he's been campaigning to get some of these artefacts returned since the early 80s. So we'll have a, a yarn with her. But as always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at Mr DT James. This is the mission on 102.7 Triple R
1: Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.
0: Now, uh, to our first guest. Uh, Deadly and Proud is a new campaign encouraging truthful storytelling from Aboriginal Victorians and traditional owners of the country. It aims to provide the Victorian public with a deeper understanding into the state's true history and encourages everyone to be proud of Aboriginal cultures and the state's plan to treaty and that is very true. If we're going to get to a treaty, we need to be honest and open with each other as much as possible. The stories all come together on a fabulous website, which can be found at deadlyandproud.vic.gov.au. One of the storytellers is on the line with us now. Uh, Jada Plater is a Palku woman from northwestern Australia, and her company, Panku Safety Solutions, stepped up during COVID-19 to provide Victoria's frontline workers with hospital-grade PPE as larger companies struggled to meet that demand. So I'll ask her that too because that's fascinating. Uh, Jada tells her story as part of the Deadly and Proud a Victorian Government campaign to share those stories on the way to treaty and I'm very pleased to say that Jada is on the line with us now. Jada welcome to the mission.
2: Hi thank you Daniel it's great to be
0: here. Uh, how did you become involved in this uh, initiative?
2: Uh, well I was approached to, to be part of it um, I think it was about a year ago now and you know I'd been well aware of the um, the Deadly Questions uh, campaign, mm. and wasn't sure at first whether um, it was appropriate for me to be part of it. This is not my country here in Victoria, but I've, I've lived here for about twenty-five years now. Um, so uh,
0: you're, you're almost as good enough to be a Victorian, so yeah,
2: <laughs> nearly, <laughs> nearly <laughs> a local. <laughs> um, but I've been very blessed to, to live on this land here um, and be part of the community here and. I felt it was quite a privilege, actually, to be be asked to be part of it.
0: What I might actually do is just play the clip from the uh, Deadly and Proud website and uh, see what you've got to say for yourself. Does that sound like a plan?
1: Sounds good. Around the millennium, there was quite a bit of movement in terms of awareness of... um, Aboriginal political aspirations or social aspirations. And it kind of, after the apology, kind of a lot of that national debate seemed to sort of simmer down a lot. I felt like it kind of uh, ground to a halt. And I feel like Treaty will reignite that. I really want our young people. To just be free. To be free to determine their future. To be able to pursue their aspirations and have that inbuilt belief that they can. I want them to know their value. I want them to know just how deadly they are. They really are. But they've just got so much in them. They've got so much amazing heritage, and I say this, um, these qualities of, of innovation and creativity that are second to none. And I want them to be able to, to feel celebrated and to celebrate themselves and go out and, and be Moorish, you know, <laughs> be deadly.
0: It's a uh, pretty powerful uh, message there, Jade, a very simple one, but uh, one that um, strongly resonates and, and should be heard by, by many. I um, wanted to ask you about your recollection. So you, you're right, there was around the time of the turn of this century, but also around the time of an, apo- of a, an apology from, uh, from Kevin Rudd to the stolen generation, so there was a, a great deal of momentum. But um, you feel that that meant momentum sort of f- fell away um, pretty quickly, and uh, as and an opportunity to pick that back up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, sometimes our news can be a bit um, focused on the flavour of the month, you know, and, mm. and we were the flavour for a little bit, and then, um, you know, it, it all led up to that apology, which was fantastic and such a, um, a, and a momentous occasion. But after that, um, you know, there was a lot of action on the ground uh, for sure, and we've, we've got the sort of reconciliation um, action plans and that sort of thing happening. But in terms of the national um, debate on the, on the political arena, uh, I just felt there wasn't a lot of movement with that. And, and in a way, I think it does have to come to something that's a lot more localised. Um, the treaty um, process that Victoria is undertaking is... Um, a really fantastic process because it really is about uh, collectively um, entering into discussion around what does this mean for us mm. here in this state, for this this people, with this um, you know, on this land what's our collective history what does treaty mean for us together what's the pathway for that even, even being able to have a dialogue about what that pathway looks like, rather than just being told this is the pathway, now follow it, um, is it really, it's just really valuable um, being able to give people a voice that haven't had a voice, um, to be able to dialogue about grievances as well as aspirations um, together to, I think treaty creates uh, the space, you know, the, the ground, mm. to be able to sit down and have those tough conversations.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things about the treaty process is actually the the discovery or the rediscovery of some of our own heritage and some of our own connections and some of our connections to um you know to land and time and place and and, and people. And so the treaty process is just not a process, it's just not a formal process of getting to a path towards t- treaty. It's by by having those discussions by themselves it's actually um there's there's healing in that, isn't there?
2: absolutely um, I think that process itself and, and that dialogue being able being heard um, is in itself very healing and affirming um, I spoke in that little clip about wanting our young people to, to feel celebrated um, to be affirmed for who they are to be acknowledged um, I think I think that's just a very human need that we all share you know thats that desire to be affirmed and and to have a voice and have our identity affirmed. And um, I think, unfortunately, we need something like this to create uh, a space for that to happen. Mm. Um, I think it did need to move from a national sort of focus to a more localised focus because I feel like... um, Australian people, Victorian people might know about Aboriginal culture in a broad sense but what about local culture? What about local language, um, the local traditions and the histories of this place? Um, Those are the things that uh, help you to identify with and feel like this is actually our history, not just Aboriginal history, it's our history. It's Victorian history. It's my history of my place where I live now that was here before I was here and before my grandmother was here, it's, it then becomes a, a shared story.
0: I think, I, think that's, yeah. I think that's very powerful. I think that very localised history that you were, you're talking about there, you know, if you live by a river or a creek or there's a stream that runs through your, you know, suburb or, or town, if you can actually connect that to something that was there before 1835... Um, and know that there's actually a heritage and a culture that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And the place that you live is a very, very powerful way to get connection to, to people and, and, and the community. Um, in terms of the uh, Deadly and Proud website, you're in very good company, aren't you, when, when it comes to some of the storytellers?
2: <laughs> very good company. Very, very, very good company.
0: So we have people like, uh, let's see, Auntie Faye, Carter, we have uh, Philip Murray, we have uh, Uncle Archie Roach, of course, we Ooh. have your good self, we have um, a fellow called Professor Gary Foley, we have a <laughs> fellow called Keenan Muir, <laughs> somebody you might know out there, and we have the People's Assembly itself, um, all telling stories uh, via this website, so i thoroughly encourage people to go and check it out and find out um, what it is all about for themselves. Now, I wanted to ask you about the, um, the pandemic Tell tell me about some of the work you've been doing in terms of getting PPE to to the right people at the right time.
2: Yeah, so um, so I have um two companies that um that are, are run here in Victoria. One is Panku Safety Solutions, which is a personal protective equipment and safety equipment company, and the other is Heart to Heart Training and Supplies, which is first aid um training and and first aid equipment. And um, when the pandemic hit, um, you know. There was such a, a mad panic, you know, to, to get all the, you know, your personal protective equipment, your masks and sanitizer. And um, it was pretty uh, crazy times, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, we had um, all the ethanol sort of got bought up overnight by the government to make sure there was enough there to be able to produce the necessary supplies for hospitals and the like. And, um, and, you know, it actually provided us with a real opportunity to be able to support some of our critical infrastructure here. Um, normally it's very difficult to get uh, a foot in the door with uh, a lot of sort of bigger contracts and things. Uh, as an Aboriginal company and as a small business, you know, we naturally present more risk in, in the eyes of procurement. Um but we are in a situation with the pandemic where the normal procurement rules didn't apply um, because it was um, a crisis, crisis procurement. And where a lot of the major suppliers um, for whether it's government departments or corporates um, weren't able to meet the demand and we were. So we were able to come in and um, deliver um, those essential services and those essential supplies um, at a critical time, uh, which was really gratifying um, for us Absolutely. to feel that we were able to contribute in a, in a time of, of great national need and certainly need here in Victoria, especially. Um, yeah, it was, um, I'm pretty proud of what we achieved actually.
0: So 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 are we. We're listening to the mission. I'm speaking with uh, Jada Plater about uh, Deadly and Proud, but also speaking about her terrific work that she undertook during the pandemic, making sure that PPE got to the right places in the right time. I think it's it's it seems like such a long time ago, and it seems like you know we're we're living in a in, in a COVID norm now, Jada. But people forget all the obstacles that had to be um to to be you know overcome to to get people protected, to get people the right health messages and, and to actually get that equipment to them. How are we tracking with all that now? Are we are we in the right space to deal with getting PPE to, to, to people at the right time?
2: Look, I think there's a, there's a, a fair bit of uh, stockpiling going on around,
0: right.
2: <laughs> around the place. And, you know, it was so difficult to get any product in. Of course, all the freight went down from overseas as well. Um, so there were big delays, um, huge demand on overseas supply um you know even even getting bottles to put your sanitizer in became really difficult like um all the labels to print all the cartons to put them in like it just there was so much stress on every part of that supply chain but as things eased then you know a, a lot of supply came in um so there's quite a few people sitting on quite a bit of stock right now, right. Um, but you know I think I think we need to. Um, it's such an uncertain um, landscape that we're facing right now. Even you know we're in a snap lockdown right now, um, and we're in our we're in our summertime. You can see what's happening overseas mm. with the winter there. We don't know um, what's ahead, and you know that's a challenge for businesses. Um, whether you're supplying PPE or whether you're a uh, a user of it, to know how much, you know, how do you you forecast for something like this? Uh, How do you make sure we're not in that situation where we're not going to have enough, um, but at the same time not wanting to overstock and, you know, Particularly something like sanitizer, it's a flammable, dangerous good. Yeah. So, you know, to forget all those that. considerations, you know, <laughs> to, take, to take into consideration as well. But, you know, I think, um, you know, there's always a lot of wisdom in hindsight. And um, I, I think every, all the um, government departments and, and larger corp- corporations that I've uh, engaged with through this, um, you know, it, it's never going to be back to just business as usual. No. There are going to be just some fundamental changes to the way that we, uh, whether it's procurement or the um, the way we do health and safety in the workplace, or work from home or in the office, that are just going to, to to be altered for the for for the next foreseeable future, and not necessarily for a bad thing as well. I think we've all learnt. Um, That there are some great benefits from having the flexibility in workplace as well, Um, and I think we're all much better educated about uh, personal hygiene. (laughs)
0: For one, well, I think I think if anyone's learned anything tonight, uh, Jada, is that uh, not smoke and sanitise at the same time. (laughs) Uh, Very important information. Um, listen, thank you very much for your time. Um, in relation to Deadly and Proud, you can go to the website, deadlyandproud.vic.gov.au, um, but we'll keep in touch with you, uh, Jada, because uh, the work that you do is tremendously important and we'd love to hear uh, more about it. But um, thank you so much uh, for your time this evening. Thanks,
1: Daniel. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: Now, to our second guest, yesterday the Royal Society of Tasmania and the Tasmania Museum of Art Gallery and Art Gallery have apologised ahead of the return of 14,000 year old Aboriginal artefacts to their original sites. The po- apology was a culmination of decades of lobbying and advocacy and imploring various administrations throughout the years to simply do the right thing. Monday's apology was part of the return of 14,000-year-old petroglyphs to their original site in Piramangana in the state's northwest. The petroglyph slabs were taken from Piramangana in the 1960s and given to the museum in Hobart, and the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery in Launceston. The pieces were taken to Hobart were displayed from 1967 to 2005, but have been kept in storage since. Now, among the leading advocates charging to get these um, artefacts returned to their rightful place back on country is Nala Mansell. Nala is the campaign coordinator at the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre and represents the political... ...and Community Development Aspirations of Tasmanian Aboriginal Community... ...and we're very pleased to have Nala on the line with us now. Nala, welcome to uh, RRR. Yeah,
3: Pauling and R, thanks for having me.
0: Absolute pleasure. Let's start with the, the artefacts themselves. Um, where were they removed from, when and and Why?
3: Um, So uh, I think as we've seen with the history of uh, Australia and um, the racist attitudes of the uh, white invaders, um, scientific evidence was used as an excuse um, to... Up to Premangana in the 1960s with a chainsaw um, to cut out our ancient sacred rock carvings that had been um, left there for our left there for thousands of years, um, stories passed on through generations. Um, yeah, and unfortunately in the 1960s, the museum uh, enlisted someone to go up to the site with a chainsaw and cut them out so that they could then be put on display uh, in the museum in Hobart.
0: So ex- just describe what the petroglyphs are. They're 14,000-year-old they're and, and, and what are they, what do they relate to and who, they, who do they relate to?
3: So they're the carvings of our old people uh, that tell stories about uh, the area. Um, There's no actual recordings of what uh, the carvings, what each carving actually represents or what the symbols represent. Uh, But we do know that um, they, as you say, they're um, thousands of years old. Uh, They were carved into that uh, rock at Premingana because of the um, sacred significance of that area. Uh, And uh, the carving of the rocks would have taken place over many generations. But um, unfortunately, uh, that culture is not something that's continued on because of the effects of invasion uh, and the desecration of our cultural heritage.
0: And so finally, yesterday after... Decades of campaigning, particularly from from your dad Michael and uh, your good self, and a whole bunch of like minded and um, good people, the the art gallery and the Royal Society of Tasmania actually apologised for taking those artifacts in the first place. Yeah.
3: So. Um you know, it was a momentous celebration. Uh, it was a great day for Aboriginal people of today, but not just Aboriginal people of today, for the memory of our ancestors. Mm. Uh, the Tasmanian Museum, uh, we responsible for... Uh, When Traganini died, her uh, dying wish was that she be cremated and have her ashes spread in the Don Tricasto Channel uh, here in Nipaluna, Hobart, where her people were from, uh, because she'd seen so many of her people around her have their remains dug up. Uh, So as she knew would happen, her remains were dug up after her death and her full skeleton was on display at the Tasmanian Museum for many years. Uh, So, you know, it took us over a 100 years of fighting to have her remains returned to the Aboriginal community. Laws needed to be changed for that to happen. There was a lot of resistance from the museum, but eventually, a 100 years after her death, we were able to um, give her the cremation ceremony that she had asked for when she was alive and her ashes were spread in a um, traditional ceremony as she'd wanted. Um, yeah, so the museum has a terrible history of uh, not just desecrating our cultural heritage such as the rock carvings, uh, but they also um, had a the Crowther collection, which included many skulls and other bones of mm-hmm. Tasmanian Aboriginal people. Uh, so we were able to get them back after years of lobbying. Um, The Royal Society of Tasmania were responsible for uh, enlisting William Crowther to dig up the remains of William Lanny. His head was sent off to um, institutions around the world. Uh, They cut off his hands and feet and used his skin to make a tobacco pouch. Uh, They later awarded a gold medal to William Crowther for what he'd done to William Lanny. Um, so you know, there's a horrific history when it comes to Aboriginal people here in Tasmania, and it was uh, yesterday was a great opportunity for the museum and for the Royal Society to own up to the horrific treatment of Aboriginal people um, traditionally, historically, and um, in the more modern sense when. They've been resistant to us uh, fighting to have our cultural heritage returned to the Aboriginal community.
0: And they had the temerity to call us savages. You know, when you think about the the colonial history and the collection of artefacts, which terribly happened in Tasmania, but also happened uh, extensively on the North Island as as well, it um, really breaks your heart to to think that uh, the, the, the care and diligence that, people went to, in the, our old people went to, to lay their loved ones to rest, have been desecrated in such a in such a terrible way.
3: Yeah, and as you say, it's not just in Tasmania, it's happening right across Australia and the Maori people as well have had the same thing happen. Uh, I think we all know that a person's spirit can't be laid to rest until uh, their bodies are put back into the lands that they belong. So, um, you know, as I said, it, it took a 100 years of us to, of campaigning to have dragon remains uh, returned. It's taken us over 50 years to have the rock carvings returned. Uh, the Tasmania Museum has agreed to return the stolen carvings. There's a massive process involved in that. The carvings now have a big cement slab attached to the bottom of them. They've been cut in half but glued back together. So it kind of leaves us um, with the issue of how we're going to be able to transport them back to their um, sacred homelands without any further damage. Um, But, you know, we were aware that our old fellas would... um, you know, be happy with us doing whatever we can just to make sure that they're taken home and that's what we'll, what we'll be doing in the next couple of months.
0: It's going to be a tremendously delicate episode, um, exercise. And just to put things in, in perspective for, for some people out there, you know, the much lauded Stonehenge is uh, 5,000 years old. These particular artefacts, these petroglyphs, are, are known to be 14,000 years old and we have that history right here in this country and it goes back further than anything you will find in Europe one of the things your um, your father uh, Michael said uh, yesterday in the reports that I read Nala was that uh, yesterday's apology was just the start What, what did he mean by that?
3: Uh, well, while the government, uh, sorry, while the museum has agreed to return uh, the petroglyphs or the rock carvings that were stolen from Ghana they still have in their possession some rock carvings that were taken from an area not far from Ghana at Greens Creek. Um, so we were calling on them to announce uh, during yesterday's apology that those carvings would be returned, but we're yet um, to... Have that um, to have that permit granted. Well, what what, um, what possible holding...
0: case could they have for, for holding on to them?
3: Uh, I So in conversations that I've had, I've been told that because uh, we've had Premangana return to the Aboriginal community, it's easier for them to return those rock carvings, but because we don't own the land that the other carvings were taken from, um, it's a bit more of a process. But, uh, you know, we'll be putting the pressure on uh, the museum following their apology to back up... their words with some action. Uh, We're pretty disappointed, even disgusted at the Tasmanian Premier who uh, could grant the permit for those rock carvings to be returned. He could uh, do the same and acknowledge the uh, trauma and historical um, mistreatment of Aboriginal people, but he's refusing to do so. Uh, We haven't had any land returned to our people in over 20 years. We owned 100% of Lutrawita, Tasmania, um, 200 years ago, and we now own less than 1%. So we're calling on the Premier of Tasmania to stand up um, and, you know, take some leadership from these other institutions who are finally apologising to the Aboriginal community and agreeing to do more when we've seen absolutely nothing from the government.
0: Yeah, read read the room, Peter. What's he, Peter Gutwine or Gutwin? Or yeah, Peter Gutwin. You? Peter Gutwin, yeah. So he only holds 13 of the 25 seats in the House of Assembly. So um, I'm sure that uh, any campaign that is uh, mounted by uh, the, you mar- marvellous people um, will uh, hopefully make him nervous enough to, to do the right thing because what is right is right. <laughs> and getting these artefacts back to where they belong is the absolutely right thing to do. Um, before I let you go, Naila, tell us a little bit about your work with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre.
3: Uh, so I've been employed for about 17 years. I um did youth work for about 10 years. I was elected by the Palawa community as the State Secretary. Um, I have spoken at each invasion day rally, um assisted with the Aboriginal dual naming policy mm-hmm. here in Luchowita, Tasmania. Yeah, just 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 um,
0: explain that dual naming policy, uh Noah, so people here understand what it is.
3: So Tasmania was the only state in Australia that didn't have an Aboriginal dual naming policy. So we saw um Ayers Rock be dual named with Uluru. Uh, I think other states have Yeah the Grambians um, with Garrow
0: word here. Yep.
3: Yeah, yep. So we've now uh, Kunani, our Mount Wellington has... Um, is also known as its original name, uh, Premangana, where the rock carvings are from. Um, so we've done a lot of work in uh, being able to regain and re-strengthen our language, Palawakani, uh, and we've seen um, many landscape areas uh, revert back to their original name. Uh, but unfortunately, with the Premier that we've got at the moment, a lot of that hard work has taken a back step uh, with the government, um Stepping in to determine Aboriginality for themselves, uh, and we've got a bit of a fight when it comes to the dual naming here in Lutruwita, But we're a proud people. We've been fighting since they first arrived, uh, and we'll continue to fight to make sure that our language and our land and our heritage is protected.
0: Well, we know we know two things. We know one thing is that governments come and go, and we know that Aboriginal people across the country are very very good at playing. The long game. And that's what you've done here to get these artefacts back. So congratulations to you and your people. Um, Thank you so much for your time. And let's stay in touch and uh, make sure that uh, we stay on this issue and um, provide you with uh, all the support we can from the North Island.
3: That would be great. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Nala. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission. A weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.